Hello and welcome to episode number 194 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Do remember to follow along on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. In this episode, we're going to hear from Demet Asla Chaltekin, assistant professor at Durham University's Durham Law School and the author of Conscientious Objection in Turkey, a socio-legal analysis of the right to refuse military service, published by Edinburgh University Press. We had this conversation before Turkey's recent elections, and I'm recording this introduction just before Turkey's presidential runoff. But thematically, I do think this conversation is quite timely, because one of the major themes that has emerged from the ballot boxes in this election is the rise of a new form of belligerent nationalism, or at least the persistence of an old one, or its modification. And in this conversation, we are discussing the ubiquity of militarism and nationalism in the country. That nationalism is not limited to any one party, any one political figure, the government or the opposition side. Almost everyone is marinated in it and every political actor seems to have to acknowledge the prevalence of nationalism or even ultra-nationalism if they want to get anywhere. Demet Asla Chartikin's book looks at the impact of this reality on a particular group of people, conscientious objectors, men who refuse, for whatever reason, to do their compulsory military service. Turkey is the only member of the Council of Europe that has not recognized the right to conscientious objection and the social and legal consequences of this conscientious objection in Turkey are very heavy indeed. Chaltekin's research with over a dozen conscientious objectors describes the difficult situation they find themselves in and the book also looks into the origin of military service in Turkey and how it's evolved and changed over time. We discuss all that in our conversation but before we get started let me appeal once again. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together and I do need listeners support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since we launched Turkey Book Talk back in 2015, we've published almost 200 episodes, giving a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It's incredibly rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks and I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a member isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. 
To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But enough of all that, let's get on to our conversation now with Demet Asla Chaltekin. I started by asking her to set the scene for us. She talks in the introduction to the book about the, quote, normalization of militarism when she was growing up here in Turkey. So I asked her to outline what she meant by that. So when I talk about normalization of militarism, I always give this example of school ceremonies where, for example, in primary schools, we all used to stood up every morning and recite the National Pledge of Allegiance, which goes like, I offer my existence to the nation, Turkish nation, as a gift. And this was not the only ceremonies. Also on Fridays, we had kind of similar ceremonies where we also read the national anthem of Turkey, again, which also had some militaristic nature, saying, for example, our blood shed for you shall not be worthy otherwise, smiling upon my heroic nation, etc. Considering these ceremonies, I see these trivial signs, these trivial practices as signs of normalization, normalization of militarism and integration of the military in our everyday lives and how we were all indoctrinated from our very early ages. Let's now take it back to the beginning of this process. So right back to the early Republican era. You talk in the book about how military service was brought in actually in 1927, so just four years after the founding of the Republic. Could you talk about that, you know, the introduction of military service in 1927, how it was organised, how long it was for everyone, and, you know, what were the exceptions? The broad question of military service and how it first came to be applied nationally in Turkey. Yeah, so... I do not have enough data or knowledge on the technicalities of the conscription at that time. But the male conscription system was introduced in 1927 when Turkey was still recovering from World War One, the impacts of uh, World War One and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And within this environment, the military service or having a strong standing army was necessary, particularly to defend the nation, defend the borders against its external enemies. However, as Ayşe Gülaltıntay or other civil military relations scholars argue, then the military service became more than just a necessity to maintain the national security, but it also became like a way to promote national unity and create a sense of shared sacrifice among Turkish citizens. So what we see, what we experience, then the myths of every Turk is born a soldier or the Turkish nation is a military nation became the main justifications. They became the main justification for having a strong standing army. And again, as Ayşe Gülaltıntay also argues, the military service became a cultural characteristic of Turks. 
at the same time, the military service was seen as a school, like as a school that teaches young men how to become physically or spiritually strong individuals. It was kind of a school teaching young men how to become a better citizen, again, quotation mark, better or a real man. When we think about westernization process in Turkey as well, the military was also seen as a way to, again, teach these young men the modern and Western values. And since this, the military was seen as a school, then the Turkish armed forces was constructed as the guardian of this new westernized country. And I believe that this constructing the army, the Turkish armed forces as the guardian of the new modern regime, this laid the basis for the contemporary militarization process in Turkey. Basically, when you perceive the military as the school of the nation, you enable the military to interfere in politics or in everyday life. And that blurs the line between civilian and military affairs. Again, when it expands its power into the civilian institutions, it becomes really difficult for individuals to criticize the military or to exercise their legal rights, the right to conscientious objection. Because any critique, any challenging the, the, the institution and any critique about the military service itself may be perceived as a threat to the nation's spirit or the nation's, let's say, existence. So obviously the book is about conscientious objection and the criminalization of it in Turkey. And that criminalization comes from Article 318 of the Penal Code under the subheading alienating people from military service. So just briefly, what are the legal punishments for avoiding military service in mm -hmm. Turkey? Yeah, maybe before talking about the legal punishment, I want to indicate the right to conscientious objection is a fundamental human rights. And this is protected under international and also regional human rights treaties. There is no straightforward direct recognition of the right to conscientious objection. But under this inter international uh, human rights treaties, this right is recognized and it derives from the freedom of conscience and religion. So when we look at the international standards, there is a slow but well-established standards on conscientious objection. However, despite this universal recognition, at the domestic level, Turkey still refuses to acknowledge this right. So this non-recognition of the right to conscientious objection at the domestic level makes it again very difficult for conscientious objectors to declare their objection or to exercise their right. So when they refuse to become part of this military, the military structure, they face human rights violations. And that's how civil death starts for them. So what they experience, they face the risk of repetitive prosecutions and convictions. And after they serve their sentence, they are asked to join the army again. And that means this puts them in a position to declare their objection one more time. And when they declare their objection one more time, that means they are seen as new acts. Therefore, they can be punished again. So this puts the objectors under repetitive prosecutions for one individual rejection or one, one act, which is rejecting to join the army. 
then we look at the international standards. There has been progress in international standards with regards to conscientious objectors or prosecuting conscientious objectors. So we do have in Turkey also slight changes with this regard. And this repetitive imprisonment is now shifted to repetitive administrative sentences. So basically, these sentences are often converted to judicial fines. However, still objectors are receiving repetitive judicial fines, administrative sentences, which puts them in a, again in a very difficult position. So when we look at the punishment regime as well, what we see, conscientious objectors, they also face unequal treatments with regards to finding jobs with social security. In addition to this, not finding job with social security or being exposed to repetitive punishments, conscientious objectors' freedom of movement is also restricted. So when I did my interviews and my participants, they always refer to this pattern of when I checked in in the hotel, it was 5 a.m. in the morning, the police came because I didn't perform my military service. And then when the police comes to their hotels, that means they they are exposed to additional uh, additional administrative fines because when the police comes, they have to declare their objection. They have to say, I'm conscientious objectors, I'm not joining the army. And that regard, they are exposed to fines as well. As you see, conscientious objectors in Turkey, they are subjected to repeated punishments. They are not considered as conscientious objectors when they declare their objections because we don't have this right in Turkey, but they are considered as draft evaders. And again, these punitive measures, they violate conscientious objectors' basic human rights, right to freedom of conscience and religion, fair trial, Freedom of expression is one of the basic human rights. Again, right to work as well. Now, there's no official information on the number of conscientious objectors. And Mm. it strikes me that this whole issue is not really very well discussed in Turkey, even in a negative way. You know, it's really, really you see coverage of it. It's not, you know, a widely recognised issue. Could you just estimate, you know, how many conscious conscientious objectors there are out there? Mm-hmm. Is it even possible yeah. to do that? Well, I tried to when I did my, this research. As you said, conscientious objection is not legally recognized. Therefore, we don't have any official data on the number of conscientious objectors. But when I conducted this research in 2018, the Association of Conscientious Objection in Turkey they have reported around 500 members of this conscientious objection, association of conscientious objection. They declared their objection. And from the website, I basically calculated one by one going back to the last couple of years. So in numbers in 2018 was around 500. But the number is likely to be much higher than this figure because conscientious objectors, they are routinely declaring their objection. Even probably right now when I'm talking to you, someone might be declaring their objection or even writing their declarations or even thinking about it. So, yeah, the number of conscientious objectors in Turkey, it is increasing and objectors, they use their objection as a tool to question the normalization of militarism. So the book is based on over a dozen interviews with conscientious objectors. Firstly, how did you find these individuals? And secondly, what major themes emerged from those interviews? 
their motivations behind rejecting the army, their motivations were diverse. And what I noticed, like what I learned from the objectors, that conscientious objection in Turkey is not just about pacifism, or it is not just about refusing to serve in the army or holding guns. It is all about challenging the societal norms and values that reinforces militarism or reinforces violence. So the myths that I was talking about, every Turkey is born a soldier, for example, they, they challenge this kind of meats. They say, no, every Turk is not born a soldier. They were born as babies. And in that regard, what they are doing, they are seeking to reshape their place in society themselves. So they refuse to adhere to socially constructed norms. These norms, they determine the roles of quotation mark being good citizens or being real men. So what they do, they refuse to adhere to these standards or gender stereotypes that helps militarism to maintain its power in, in a society. So yet these were the common myths that emerged from the data it, is, it wasn't only about seeking an exemption from the military service, but it was about challenging the militarization of society, challenging the historical and social factors that contribute to the militarization of society. So they had broad motivations. I wondered if also you gleaned anything on sort of minorities. You know, do we have any idea of how extensive conscientious objection is among Kurds, for example? Or is it not, or is it even not possible to, to get that kind of information? To be honest, I don't have enough data to confirm that, to confirm or to generalize the background of the conscientious objectors in Turkey. So when I interviewed conscientious objectors, my participants, they were all members of the Association of Conscientious Objection. And yes, most of them, they identify themselves as anarchists, not pacifists, but anarchists. But they came from diverse ethnic backgrounds. I had Kurdish conscientious objectors, but also I had Turkish objectors as well. So my participants, at least, they had diverse ethnic backgrounds. They also came from uh, diverse religious backgrounds as well. And their motivations for objecting the military service were also diverse. For example, some of them referred to their religious convictions or pacifist grounds, but other objectors, they focus on their anti-militarist views, or some of them were lawyers, and therefore they focus on more legal grounds. They believe that this is their legal rights, and therefore they should be able to exercise this internationally recognized right. But what I can say is that they all shared one common goal, which is, again, as I mentioned, criticizing, challenging the militarization of society. And they also focused on the political and cultural structures of Turkey. And then they found this social and political dynamics as kind of one of the main reasons why they are declaring their objection. What about Bedeli Askerlik? This is quite hard to actually translate that into English, but it's basically this system where you can pay money to mm -hmm. avoid military service or yeah. to do a kind of very rapid military service, basically three weeks for graduates. And it's obviously quite a large fee. It's going up all the time with inflation, obviously. But this system mm -hmm. of bed Eliaskalik where people can basically pay to avoid military service or to reduce it significantly. When was that brought in? So I think Bedelli Askerlik, we can translate it as paid military service. Yeah. Uh, 
as far as I know, it was first introduced either at the end of 1980s or beginning of 1990s. And over the years, it was it has been revised and updated several times. For example, they changed the duration of the service and sometimes they changed the amount of the fee. So it all depends on how many times it was introduced. It is believed that it was introdu- introduced to generate income or maybe slightly to resolve the issue of draft evaders. As far as I remember, again, it was also introduced after the Marmara earthquake to, again, to create uh, financial resources. But as you mentioned, I think this paid military service creates an unfair system. And this system uh, favors those who can afford to pay. And again, as far as I know, because it's not my field, Turkey might be the only country that applies paid military service. And to be honest, the paid military service didn't come up during the interviews. I didn't ask my participants this question because the answer would have been (laughs) too obvious because the fundamental issues is not about the duration of the military service or gaining exemption from the military service by paying a fee, but it's all about the fact that military service is compulsory. And those who refuse to serve in the army, they face legal and social consequences. So this is what bothers the conscientious objectors. Therefore, I didn't ask them the question because the question was going to be a clear cut no. But instead of that, what I asked them, we talked about alternative civilian service, like rather than holding a gun, whether they would be willing to serve in the army, but in a civilian, in a task that are civilian in nature. So my participants, like during the interview, some of them, they acknowledged that. They were like, okay, civilian service might be a solution to repeated prosecutions or repeated administrative fines that conscientious objectors face. It can be a solution for this. But conscientious objectors in Turkey, like the big percentage of them at least, they refuse any kind of alternative service as well, even if they are civilian in nature, because they refuse to be part of this militarization process through the conscription system. So even if they have the alternative civilian service, that means we will still have the conscription system and they will become part of this conscription system, even though it is um, a civilian task. So in that regard, even though they acknowledge that this may solve some of the problems, but this is not the main issue that they are trying to challenge. In that regard, most of them might reject the alternative civilian service as well. I don't want to generalize again, but most of them may reject it as well. Now you talk in the book about how there's been a narrowing of the military in recent years, a gradual professionalization of the military in Turkey, a reliance more on professional soldiers rather than conscripts. So there's this growing sense that you know the military isn't quite the all-encompassing and central fact of life that it once was, even though obviously the military does have a more prominent role in Turkey still than it does in many other countries. But At the same time, obviously, you know, while the military as an institution might not be that central fact in all areas of life anymore, the values of the military and militarism itself very much are. So you say that, quote, despite the decreasing role of the Turkish armed forces at an institutional level and the fact that society's perception has changed, militarism is still omnipresent in contemporary Turkey. 
Could you just say a word to expand on that point, this weird paradox, how the formal role of the military has been reduced somewhat in public life, but the values and the imagery and the rhetoric around the military are still in the ascendancy, it seems, and still Mm -hmm. very front and centre in politics, for example. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Basically, as you mentioned that Turkish armed forces, it has a historical influence and it was integrated into our civilian institutions and in our daily lives as well. But recently, in order to meet the requirements of the European Union, Turkey has implemented reforms. For example, one of them is that it amended the military criminal code and abolished uh, military uh, trials of civilians. So there has been some institutional changes made to reduce the military's power in in politics or in in everyday life. However, these reforms, they didn't aim at demilitarization of society because the military service has become the cultural characteristics of Turks. And it's not only about integrating into the civilian institutions, but it's also about integrating into our uh, the civilians' minds. So therefore, since these reforms, they didn't aim at the demilitarizations of society. Therefore, they remained at institutional level, but at societal level, still we hold on militaristic values. And I'm afraid the militarization of society is still, still persisting in Turkey. That was Demet Asta Chaltekin. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 194. Do remember, we need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going, and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or indeed all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is, among many other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.